Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team discussing and analyzing the latest in the world of biopharma. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor here at BioCentury, and here's who from the team is joining me on the podcast this week. I'm Simone Fishburn, editor-in-chief. Paul Bonanos, director of biopharma intelligence. And Selena Koch, executive editor. On today's podcast, fall deal-making is in full swing. We assess Daiichi's $4 billion ADC tie-up with Merck. And today's $7.1 billion deal in which Roche gains a TL1A asset for IBD that was housed in a Royvant Pfizer joint venture. We'll also preview our event on the sidelines of November's Jeffries meeting and discuss our deep dive into the emerging base editor toolkit. But first, there's still time to register for our 10th China Healthcare Summit. It's next week, November 2nd and 3rd in Shanghai. We have a great program of Western and China biopharma execs, bankers, investors, headlined by Sanofi CEO Paul Hudson, plus 40 biotechs selected to present by BioCentury. If you can't attend in person, no worries. Register instead for Digital Pass. Learn more at BioCenturyChinaSummit.com. All right, as I mentioned at the top, we've got two deals to talk about, one between Merck and Daiichi Sankyo, and another between Roche and Royvant. Let's start with the first. On Friday, Merck did a deal with Daiichi around its antibody drug conjugate pipeline, taking rights to three products in a deal for $4 billion up front and I think north of $20 billion in biobucks. Tell us about it, Paul. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And and by the way, that's the biggest upfront payment ever for a biotech licensing deal, according to BioCentury's BCIQ database. There are also some fairly near-term payments that could make it $5.5 billion within two years' time. And the total deal value, as you say, is huge, $22 billion if all three products fulfill sales milestones. So, so what does Merck get? Uh, three ADCs, one of which is getting close to a regulatory submission. That's called patritumab deruxtecan, and it targets HER3 to treat EGFR mutant lung cancer. There are two more that are in earlier stages of development, one targeting B7H3 and another directed at CDH6. Uh, the former has shown some promise in small cell lung cancer and the latter in ovarian and renal cancers. And all three are based on the same ADC platform, the, the linker and the payload essentially, with which Daiichi built some other products that are partnered with AstraZeneca. Those are in HER2, which has delivered some excellent data and is approved for HER2 positive breast, lung, and gastric cancers. It's doing well commercially as well. And another product in late clinical development targeting TROP2. That's uh, Datopotamab deruxtecan. So there's a couple of ways of thinking about this, Paul and Selena, in fact. I mean, Really, ADCs, I mean, could they be even hotter than they are? <laughs> it just sort of seems to be, uh, I don't know, year of the ADC based on um, deals and maybe even new company formations or whatever. Jeff, we've certainly seen that China deals, East-West mm. deals, have focused a lot on ADCs. And Paul, tell me your thoughts. I mean, this is a 
obviously a deal with a lot of money behind it, but I think most people look at this and I don't know that they'd say it's cheap at the price, but it's not hard to see revenues covering this kind of cost. Is that the way you're looking at it? It could very well pay off, yes, in in time. Again, Merck uh, has shown interest in this area. As you mentioned, an East-West deal, they have a Three deals, really, with uh, Kellen, Sichuan Kellen, a Chinese company um, that had covered nine assets. They've actually given back two of them just this morning. But um, they've been betting on ADCs for some time. They were not the buyer of CGen. Uh, Pfizer wound up winning the bidding for that one. Even at $22 billion, they're still getting three products, three shots on goal, you know, as opposed to what Pfizer got with CGen. Paul, um, let me stop you there. I'm, I'm curious, for Daiichi, where does it fit in? Yeah, just to back up a little from there, Daiichi is in the midst of executing on a five-year plan that they laid out in 2021. Um, they had decided to make ADCs a pillar of that strategy, which has worked out very well for them and maybe showed some foresight on their part. Um, they even had made a, a term out of it, not really a brand name, but they had referred to three ADCs as a pillar of the strategy. We're going to maximize the three ADCs. And the three were the two that they partnered with AstraZeneca plus the HER3 program that just went to Merck. But they'd been saying all along that they wanted to keep the HER3 program in-house. So there's a bit of an about-face there. And also this spring, uh, just a few months ago, uh, Daiichi had been saying, you know, we have some other programs that are moving faster than expected. So maybe the three ADCs are really five ADCs. And um, now Merck has gone ahead and done a deal for the three that AstraZeneca didn't already have. So two plus one, those are the five. They've got one more behind it, uh, targeting tumor-associated mucin-1, but that's much earlier in development. So it seemed that when HER2 had its standout success, both clinically and since then on the market, that there was some speculation, oh, Daiichi's cracked the code, right? This linker payload technology combo might be what the fields needed. Um, now, of course, it seems like, as stories do, it's gotten more complicated. So the TROP2, if you look within its class, what have you seen there as it's kind of comparison? Well, it's funny that Gilead is the competitor in, uh, for both targets, right? And and HER2 has outperformed Gilead's both clinically and in, in the marketplace thus far. But uh, in the trope 2 field, they're actually closer together. Um, you know, there are several cancers and several readouts, so it's hard to say exactly how it will shake out. But I believe the data that just came down at ESMO this week showed that there was less differentiated less differentiation between the two than some people had hoped for. Selena, that actually brings me to a question I was going to ask you, which is, do you look at this now more in terms of the specific products rather than Daiichi's platform or you know specific technology? How, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, the the specific target, the indication. There's like. In the biology, there's a bunch of factors at play here. For instance, the um, recycling activity of the receptor in the membrane, for instance, can make a big difference as to um, how the efficacy plays out and the strength of the bystander effect would be another thing that could vary from target and indication and whatnot. So it's not, it's not quite so simple as they just have a great linker payload. It's going to vary in, for each one of these products. Right. And then, you know, I, I thought that was a good point you made before, Paul, that Pfizer bought the whole company with CGEN for, I think, $42 billion. We've seen this. And, you know, the $22 billion is with milestones, right? Or with, yes. you know, upon delivery. It's not it's not all up front. So I, I think we should probably expect to 
see some more big ticket deals in this area now. It'd be nice for the sector, I'm sure. Um, M&A like this is welcome good news after the past couple of years. All right. Well, let's let's get to that then. Turning to today's deal, uh, Roy Vant Roche, it's the latest in a class that's provoked a great deal of interest for autoimmune disease, hasn't it, Paul? That is right. Yes. This is really the third deal in a pretty short period of time around TL1A. That's a target in the TNF superfamily. So Roche is acquiring a Royvant subsidiary, as you said, called Televant, that has existed for less than a year. And the driver of the deal is an antibody called RVT3101. And that antibody came from Pfizer. Royvant and Pfizer set up uh, a deal um, early December last year, 2022. And Televant held U.S. and Japan rights. Royvant owned 75% of the venture and Pfizer, the, the 25% balance. And the program had some promise back then, but the price tag was not very high at all for Royvant to get into it compared to the deal price announced Monday anyway. Um, Royvent contributed $45 million in cash and said it would continue to invest in the program, which was in a phase 2B study at that time. That trial has since read out. The antibody has shown efficacy in ulcerative colitis with safety advantages over other classes with approved drugs, uh, thus far anyway. And that's vastly increased the program's value as shown by today's deal. So Roche is paying $7.1 billion to acquire Televant and then get these territorial rights. All right. And you said it's the third deal in this class. What are the others? Yeah, that's right. Um, so there's one other that's very large, which is Merck's acquisition of Prometheus in April for $10.8 billion. That was also in a for, for a phase three ready asset. Um, and it's fair to say that deal was also driven by a phase two B readout. And it's a little bit ahead of the Televant product in the clinic. And also just a few weeks ago, the third deal, Teva partnered with Sanofi on an asset that's still in phase two testing. The economics are smaller. It's $500 million up front, but uh, they're also sharing rights. It's not an acquisition at all. You know, we have yet to see what their mid-stage data are like. So that might be a, a really good deal for Sanofi getting in at a fairly bargain price. But all this enthusiasm stems from clinical evidence, and that's from the Prometheus Merck program, as well as the Televant one in today's deal, um, that suggests these products could be about as efficacious as some approved therapies without some of the side effects associated with them. So like if you look at Rinvoke, the JAK1 program from AbbVie, that's a blockbuster drug that addresses an unmet need in IBD, specifically patients who aren't served very well by standard of care. And there are a lot of those patients. Um, but Rinvoke has a black box warning with some serious risks. And so far, Prometheus and Televan have generally shown cleaner safety profiles. We'll have to see how they fare in phase three. We'll see how they differentiate from each other and from approved therapies. But there's reason to think that the TL1A class could do very well in the market. And moreover, what works in UC can often work in Crohn's disease or some other immune disorders. So this could be a class that addresses a range of diseases like Humira did. And obviously, that's a drug that has transformed many lives. So, um, you know, there, there's plenty of upside in this class and for the programs that are involved in the deals. All right. Well, Simona, last week you hosted our on-demand webinar, Creating High Value Biotechs, the Tear Jumpers. Some of our listeners might remember our back-to-school issue from September. Uh, the webinar kind of built on that. We had some great guests. And... I'm curious, Simone, uh, the dreadful state of the XBI was top of mind for everyone on that session. Will deals like this, do you think they'll start to move the needle a little bit? 
Well, I think the discussion until now really bears out what at least the first part of the webinar dealt with. And I invite the audience to go and see it's, I think, free with registration. You can see this webinar. Um, the second half of it really talked about what it takes to build a high-value, sustainable biotech. But you can't do that, as you point out, without talking about the markets. And yeah, they did start out by talking about where is the XBI. Michael Margolis from Oppenheimer, which supported this event, really had a lot to say about the markets. And his view is that it's going to continue. I won't say it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better, but he does feel that there's still a lot of companies that are going to go under, that there's still a lot of consolidation that will happen, reverse mergers, you know, some companies going under, there's pipes and liquidations, bankruptcies, you know, that's sort of a, a, a list of those things. Um, but at the same time, he thinks that it's going to be a, a very hot time for M&A. And so if you're trying to create a company or go public, I don't know that it helps you much that M&A is hotting up. But if you are a, um, a small company and you're looking for deals or, or another kind of exit, there certainly seems to be a feeling that, as I said, Paul, you started to talk about some of these deals. There's still a lot of money out there, but it does seem to be what you're talking about. His words, the bar is really high. He refers to the XBI as a psychological index, but he does say that what you really need to do is, what can I tell you? You've got to have really high quality clinical data. You've got to have a high addressable market. You've got to have a very, very differentiated product. And if you do, then there, there's a rainbow for you. But the overwhelming sense you get when you talk to this panel and other people is there's no room in this market for incrementalism. You know, Jamie Rubin, who is now CFO at Boundless Bio, but has been, you know, she was a longtime Goldman Sachs analyst and, you know, she's worn a few hats. She also really feels that it's about differentiation. She says, you know, we don't need 800 companies. We don't need all these companies going after the, the same ideas and the same products. So I think it. what I'm hearing is it's sort of going to be rough for a lot of people for some while to come. But I have to do a little bit of, uh, you know, rose spectacles here with Michael Margolis again. It's still incredible innovation, he says. You know, that hasn't stopped we will get through this. Um, I think most people are looking at 2024, maybe late 2024 for slightly, you know, more optimistic times on, on the public markets. Yeah. And he also, as you said, innovation was one of the bright spots he flagged. He also said M&A is on track to have one of its best years in a long time. So case in point today, as Simone said, webinar is free. It is available at biocenturybacktoschool.com. Well worth an hour of your time. Again, presented by Biocentury and our partner in this, uh, Oppenheimer. All right, let's take a quick break. I want to tell you about a CEO and investor event on the sidelines of the Jefferies Conference in London on November 14th that Biocentury will be hosting with BIA. That's the 
UK Biopharma Industry Trade Group. And Simone, you'll be there heading home to the motherland. Tell us a bit about the event. Thanks, Jeff. Well, I think we should just sort of set the scene and recognize that the Jefferies Healthcare Conference in London in November is becoming what some people call the European JP Morgan or, you know, it's a very hot event. I'm going to be talking a little bit about that with Gil Barnahom, the managing director at Jefferies. And, you know, on the BioCentury show, I think that'll be posted next week. And our event is actually on the sidelines of that. And we really thought that so many people there, this is a great opportunity to get together and talk about a few things. So we're working with BIA. In fact, I had a recent interview with Steve Bates from BIA. He's the CEO. One panel there is going to be chaired by them about why UK biotech is ready to break out. And it's got a lot of really key stakeholders there. I will be moderating a C-suite and investor roundtable with uh, Ryan Richardson, the chief strategy officer at BioNTech, and Navid Sadiqi uh, from Novo Holdings, Daphne Zohar from PureTech, James Critchley from PJT Partners, and we may uh, actually have another person joining that panel. And that's really going to be talking about identifying the next biotech bellwethers. And I'm also really happy because I'm going to do a fireside chat with Edwin Moses. I don't know if you guys know him, but he is really worth listening to. He is at Achilles and a couple of other companies, and he also led Ablinks to its own very successful exit a few years ago. And he's just a really interesting guy to talk about and to hear, you know, advice he gives to CEOs, companies starting, companies climbing, and I'm very excited to do that. And I don't need to, you know, be shy. We also have a networking reception that I'm excited about because there's going to be some good cocktails there. So, um, Jeff, maybe you'll give everybody the uh, details of where they can register for this. Yeah, sure, Simone. Um, BiocentryJeffries.com. And seats are limited. We expect to sell out. So do register soon to claim your spot. That's BiocentryJeffries.com. Okay, I want to bring Selena back in now. Last week, we published a deep dive into how academics and biotechs are expanding the therapeutic potential of base editors. It was written by our colleague, Danielle Golovin. And Selena, you edited the analysis. What stood out to you the most? A huge amount of work being done. This is a, a space that's just exploding in terms of basic research. So for those of you who don't know, we at BioCentury do a service for our readers by having a team of people who follows the academic or the basic research literature very closely, scanning for findings with the most translational potential, extracting them out, formatting them in this very like easy to digest quick format, because we know all of you are busy <laughs> and it's all about value through efficiency and relating those pieces of information. So, but in the process of doing that, well, that's called our monthly distillery, which is a distillation of the literature. Uh, in the process of doing that, we see patterns, right? And so basically, Danielle was raising her hand saying, wow, I can barely keep up with all this uh, progress in the literature around base setting technology. So base editors are exciting. You know, one of the most fundamental reasons is they're the next generation of gene editors. So since CRISPR-Cas9 was discovered, 
People have wanted to just go into the genome in a very precise way, fix a mutation, make a patient better, and a one-and-done sort of drug, and they're cured, right? <laughs> those are those are big promises, but it hasn't quite worked out that way because, you know, your traditional gene editing technology, they create these double-stranded breaks, and there's safety issues because when the cell's repair machinery gets activated, in the process of putting that back together again, mistakes get made. So a lot of the excitement around base editors is around being able to go into the genome, tinker with it without creating these cuts and therefore having a safer, more precise therapy. Selena, you indicated that this is sort of moving very fast in research, which is true. But I believe there are several companies and obviously products and programs. What's the furthest ahead? What are we you know, looking at in terms of a clinical development timeline? Okay. So I just wanted to say this deck is not giving you value through efficiency. This is the kind of thing we're going to fill your coffee mug and sit down and spend some time with it. So we found at least 14 companies, but it is around the literature, right? So, but we found that it's not just academics pushing this field forward. At least 14 companies have published on different base editing tools, systems, techniques. And then if you look at their investors, there's half a dozen or so that have invested in at least three different base editing companies. So you'll find roundups of these things in the deck if you go to it. And there's three main classes of base editors, the DNA base editors, RNA and prime editors. Um, DNA base, base editors are way out in front. And most of the, the links to the published studies that you'd find in the deck do relate to DNA-based editors. Now we have the first four have started early stage trials. So that's phase one or phase one, two. Beam Therapeutics is the leader in the space and it it's behind two of those four, but its technology is actually used in three of the four. I read this deck and I thought it was a really, really interesting collection and collation of what's going on. Selena, as I remember, there's also some very good graphics on how this works and the different type. So one thing that is clear to me is that, you know, there's several different technologies within base editing, um, different. Well, it, you know, I guess there's different bases you want to edit, right? So you've got four of them and you might need to edit any of them and they need different technologies. But uh, are we are we sort of seeing front runners or do you sort of expect them all to move ahead because as I pointed out, in different diseases, you're going to need different bases that need editing. Yeah, that's that's right. So we found in the literature at least seven types of DNA based editors. And if you look at them together as a group and you what the particular edits that they can make, um, and you compare that to the known uh, pathogenic single nucleotide mutations or polymorphism SNPs in the published literature together, theoretically, they could address 100% of known pathological SNPs, which is pretty cool. Now, reducing theory to practice is always the hard part, right? Um, yes, some of these are further along than others, but I think across the editors, there are some common themes for challenges that need to get solved. And you'll also find in the deck, if you go to it, they span from needing to regulate it through things like off switches to needing to be able to deliver it to the right place to actually treat all these different diseases to accessing kinds of targets that that traditional gene editing just can't. 
such as mitochondrial genes. And these are coming along, but it's going to take a while for those things to trickle into the, the clinical pipeline. Yeah, I mean, I just have to say for me, I think coming up on 10 years, just over since the CRISPR foundational papers, without getting into the patent dispute, were published. Um, and just seeing how that field has just, you know, really, really marched forward fast to products in the clinic. And now I think I would think of these technologies as the next generation. As you said, they're really solving the problems of the first generation of gene editing. And, you know, this goes back to the optimism that we talked about from Michael Margolis before is like the amount of biology and discovery biology and translation that's going on that is investable is, is really quite remarkable. And I think this is just one example. So I expect that, you know, when we're five years from now on this podcast, we'll be discussing very different things with this technology and what it can do. That's right. Now, maybe as warrants just a word of caution. Like we did see last week that beam therapeutics, as I said, the kind of leader in the space. Um, also all of these companies, right? They're platform companies. Like the diversity of things that this technology can do is vast. And I just talked about correcting SNPs, but you can make modifications to DNA to do whatever you want to it, right? Single nucleotide ones, you can now without actually changing out of base, you can just turn on or off gene expression. You can do exon skipping this way, so on and so forth. There's a lot that can be done. But the capital environments are such that like companies really need to focus. And so now we just saw Beam saying, hey, we're uh, looking to cut costs here and we're going to focus down on a few things. Um, so one of the things it's deprioritizing is use of this technology to create CAR-Ts. It may be still going to move ahead with its clinical program, but it's looking for a partner to help it do that instead going to focus on where it thinks, you know, the most value lies in a tool like this, which is in the realm of, not surprisingly, genetic diseases. So maybe, you know, there's going to need to be a little bit more focus in choosing of that lead program very carefully, very quickly across the field. We'll, we'll just have to see. All right. Thanks for that, Selena. Um, you can find that up on biocentry.com. It's an analysis deck, so it's cool. You can, subscribers can click and get the PDF printed out and uh, really tuck into uh, all of what Danielle found. Also on biocentry.com, you'll find our extended coverage of what's been happening at ESMO. There's been a lot of news out of that Congress as well as our Washington editor, Steve Usden's latest looks at what's happening with the Inflation Reduction Act. A little bit of movement there last week. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thank you for tuning in. We will catch you next week.